You know, there's this idea that love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And I was so taken with that. Of course, it is also a feeling, and it's a feeling that we may long for. But I realized that every time I thought of it as a feeling, for me, it became kind of like a commodity. And it was always in the hands of somebody else to give to me or to take away from me. And uh, it struck me, if love is an ability, maybe it's also a responsibility. Because I realized, well, if I want love to be present in a conversation, maybe I have to be the one to bring it in. Welcome to Mind and Life. I'm Wendy Hasenkamp. We are back with season five of the show. And I'm so pleased to be able to kick things off with the renowned and beloved meditation teacher, Sharon Salzberg. Sharon was one of the first people to bring Buddhism and meditation into America, and she co-founded the Insight Meditation Society, which is a retreat center in Massachusetts, in the mid-1970s. She's the author of many acclaimed books on meditation, she teaches around the world, and she's also the host of the Meta Hour podcast. I spoke with Sharon last spring about her experience as a meditation teacher and practitioner, and some of the insights that she's gained. In our conversation, we talk about how she came to Buddhism and meditation at age 17, and her experience as a woman in the early days of the contemplative movement. Then we get into loving-kindness meditation, which is one of the practices she's best known for sharing. And we talk about love as a feeling, as an ability— and as a responsibility. We discuss the role of narrative and storytelling in our world and in our minds, and Sharon shines a light on the importance of balance and self-compassion on the contemplative path. She also reflects on the role of the body in meditation and why contemplation matters for societal change. And we end with Sharon's thoughts on the truth of interconnection and how we might better live into this wisdom. As always, there's more information in the show notes, and you can also listen to the podcast extra there, where Sharon and I discuss some of the complexities and challenges of interpreting scientific research on meditation. Sharon was one of the first people to introduce me to meditation, so it was a great pleasure to speak with her. I continue to find her teachings so inspiring and accessible. I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. I'm so happy to share with you Sharon Salzberg. Well, I'm so pleased to be joined today by Sharon Salzberg. Sharon, welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you. I always like to start by hearing a little bit of people's personal stories about how they ended up doing the work that they're doing. And I know you've shared yours in multiple places, but if you would be willing to kind of go through whatever feels most relevant to you about how you've ended up in this field doing this kind of work. Sure. Well, you know, we're looking back a lot of years now, you know, <laughs> for me. Um, in, uh, it was 1969, I guess, or 1970, probably, when I was in college, when I did an Asian philosophy course, and it was in the context of that course that I heard more deeply that there were methods called meditation, that they were practical, they were direct, that if you actually practice them, you could be a lot happier. And I think about this moment so many times, like, you know, I was 18 years old. I was a, at that point, I was actually probably 17. I was a procrastinator. I was a very frightened person. I was, you know, I had a very traumatic childhood, like many people do. And mm -hmm. 
uh, I was not really bold. Uh, I was going to college in Buffalo, New York, and I looked around Buffalo for a place to learn how to meditate, and I could not find it anywhere. So I created an independent study project for the university and said, I want to go to India and study meditation. So they approved it, and off I went. So that was like the beginning of everything. And I think, how in the world did I do that? <laughs> what was I thinking? Because I think that's a fascinating moment anyway, when we take something we hold an abstract appreciation for and say, I'm going to make it real. Yeah. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make it real. Uh, so please study that, <laughs> because I think yeah. that's, a, that's an important moment. Um, and, uh, you know, I did find what I was looking for. I wanted something very hands-on, how-to, you know, not highly uh, embedded in a philosophical system so that you had to declare your belief or allegiance or anything like that. And I found it, and I haven't looked back since, you know, so in terms of my own practice. Um, in terms of teaching, I was in India uh, in 1974 because I spent my year there. I went back to Buffalo, did what I needed to do to finish school, and went back to India. So in 1974, I was getting ready to leave for what I was convinced was a very short trip to the U.S. before I went back to India for the rest of my life. And I went to see one of my teachers, who's a woman named Deepama, and she said to me, when you go back to the U.S., you'll be teaching. And I said, no, I won't. Mm. And she said, yes, you will. I said, no, I won't. <laughs> and she said, yes, you will. And, and we had a whole conversation about that, uh, including her saying to me, uh, you can do anything you want to do. It's your thinking you can't do it that's going to stop you. And I left her room, we would call it like a tenement room, walked down four flights of stairs thinking, no, I won't, that's ridiculous. But as life evolved, of course, they did. And so uh, that was the second strand that sort of wove together into mm. my being a teacher. And then how is it that you came to found um, Insight Meditation Society with Jack Hornfield and Joseph Goldstein? Well, Joseph and I had met in India at my very first retreat. Okay. That retreat was like a hotbed of friendship in a way. You know, like Dan Gullman was the person who told me about the retreat. Right. So I've known him longer than I've known the rest of the cast of characters. And at that first retreat, Joseph was a student. Ramdas was a student. Mirabai Bush was a student. Krishnadas. I mean, there were so many people. And uh, he had come back to the States in 74, about six months before I had. And when I got back from my very brief trip, which has lasted 50 years, um, he was in Boulder, Colorado. It was the first, uh, it was the inaugural summer of Naropa Institute. And he was there, he was sort of rammed us as teaching assistant. And Jack Cornfield was living down the hall. He had had like a parallel life in Thailand while Joseph and I and friends had been in India. And uh, a bunch of us thought, we don't know where to go. Here we are in the States. Joseph's the only one with a job and an apartment. Let's go visit Joseph in Boulder. <laughs> and so at one point, literally nine of us moved into his one-bedroom apartment. So he tells this story from his side. It was torture because he's like, he's very meticulous. And there were like nine people living with him. And uh, he said it was really suffering until he gave up the thought that it was his apartment. Uh. Then we were just living together. So... Uh, but that's where I met Jack. And then uh, I stayed on. Joseph was invited for the second summer session. I stayed on with him, sort of his teaching assistant. Then we were invited to teach a month-long retreat. So we did that. And then we'd get letters. We had nothing. We were sleeping on people's living room couches, literally. 
And we never knew if there'd be another retreat until the next letter would arrive. But people would send letters and say, I can get together some friends and a cook. Will you come teach a retreat? So it was Jack, Joseph, and I and a few other people. We would just, you know, go in different combinations in response. And then we were, the person whose house we were crashing in the most, I think in some defense, said, I have this rental property down near Santa Cruz, California. Why don't you go stay there? So we, we went there and we opened it as a retreat center, maybe three extra bedrooms or something like that. And we told people, you can come do a retreat and we'll cook for you and, and stuff. And somebody came through and he said, why don't you start a real retreat center in this country? And he said, I know all the people who can help you. They're all in Massachusetts, which was correct. You know, so we came back to the East Coast and looked around for quite a while and finally found this property, which was a Catholic novitiate at the time in Barry, Massachusetts. You said you started teaching retreats with Joseph when you were all out there in, in Boulder. I'm curious what it was like the first time that you took up that role as a teacher, especially when you thought you would never do that. Yeah. Well, I was absolutely petrified of public speaking. <laughs> so uh, as you know, the format of our intensive retreats, which are like an immersion experience so that people practice during the day, sitting meditation, walking meditation. There's teacher interaction. There, There's uh, questions and answers. But the only really kind of formal lecture is in the evening. It's like an hour or so. And I could not do it. I was totally petrified. So poor Joseph had to speak 30 nights in a row because it was a 30-day retreat. And all these people were going up and yelling at him saying, why wouldn't you let her speak? Why oh. would you let her have a voice? And he would say, I'd be delighted to have a night off. Just talk to her, you know. Could not do it. I was petrified. And my big fear was that I'd be speaking and my mind would just go blank. And I would just be sitting there and everyone would know. And it was it was months, if not years later, that I, I thought, you know, there's this one kind of topic, loving kindness, where... Uh, there's a very handy guided meditation. So maybe I can speak about that one. Because if my mind goes blank, I launch into the guided meditation and no one will know. Right. So th that's when I began to be able to give talks, actually. Uh, the person-to-person -person interaction, everyone was older than I was. I was 21 uh, in the beginning. and But I cared so much about what I had been given. And I had so much confidence that it had really done so much for me that I was kind of carried by that, mm. you know, in terms of more individual contact. Wow. So you came upon the idea of meditation at like 18, and then by 21, you were teaching. Yeah, I know. Well, that was because of this one woman, Deepama, the teacher, you know, it was like the old fashioned way, you know, she said, you do, you do this. And I said, no, I'm not. I don't know how to do that. Right. I can't do that. I'm also curious what your experience was at that time, being a woman in, in that scene. And I feel like Buddhism can be a very patriarchal in many lineages. Mm -hmm. um, and it seems like a lot of the folks that were doing this in the 70s were men, at least the folks that I've spoken to. And so just curious how that felt for you. Uh, well, again, you know, it was a woman, it was Deepamak who told me to teach. Right. And it, it probably was... It had some significance that one of the things she said to me was, you can do anything you want to do, but you're thinking you can't, it's going to stop you. 
I think the zeitgeist was once not coming necessarily even from the lineage or, or from Asia, you know, Asian teachers, but just the zeitgeist in the States. You know, uh, Joseph and I would give a course and people would thank Joseph at the end. Mm. And I'd be sitting there, you know, like, and we were not sophisticated enough, you know, to say that. Thank you so much. Let's spend some time appreciating everybody. Right. Uh, and, you know, so things like that were happening. And um, I think, though, it was on people's minds, like in those in that period when I wasn't able to give a talk, when people were going up and yelling at Joseph, you know, it was, it was thinking that that was really him, which was not. And, you know, the people, the very early books, uh, people were writing about kind of the movement of mindfulness into the country. Uh, maybe my name would be somewhere, maybe not. And... Mm. But it wasn't it wasn't like relevant in my mind, you know. Um, later, I, I mean, I realized that I made some choices. Like, I always practiced as a layperson. I never became a nun. I never entered Buddhism as a kind of institution, and I don't speak in its defense. You know, like um, my first teacher was S. N. Goenka, and that was my first. 10-day retreat in January of 1971. And the first night of that retreat, he said, uh, the Buddha did not teach Buddhism, the Buddha taught a way of life. And this is open to anybody. It's about the power of your own awareness. It's about methods you can experiment with to see if they work for you. So that was my first night. You know, it became like my foundational understanding. So, you know, I'm not trying to have people become Buddhist or reject anything else. or uh, It's really about, just like you said, the power of one's own awareness and some really kind of interesting and amazing techniques that can further that. mentioned um, already loving kindness, which is one of the first, I guess, Dharma talks that, that you gave. And obviously, you, you've become such a presence in sharing loving kindness and metta and just kind of the message of love within this contemplative space. And I, I feel like, at least for me, you were the first teacher mm-hmm. who really brought that out at a time and in a world where I feel like everything was framed towards mindfulness and attention Mm -hmm. and and those kind of practices. So I'm just wondering for you, if you could share a little bit about like what prompted your focus in that direction um, and how that was, you know, when you started sharing those practices, how that Mm -hmm. felt in Mm -hmm. the context of uh, the larger like mindfulness heavy practice movement. Yeah. Well, I mean, this also leads back to your previous question. (laughs) Yes. Um. So my first retreat was with S.N. Goenka, and he his basic method was what these days we call the body scan, which John Kapitson later popularized and also reversed direction. John starts at the feet and moves up to the head. Goenka starts at the head, moves down to the feet. But that was the, the primary tool of his presentation. And then the very last thing he did 
almost as a kind of ceremonial way of saying goodbye. It was a little loving kindness practice, hmm. which is a, a different method where, I mean, there are lots of ways of doing it because he was so sensation oriented. He, he did loving kindness through sensations, like feel sensations of love filling your body and then being offered. Later teachers I've had very much uh, emphasized like phrases, like, the silent repetition of phrases like may you be happy, may you be peaceful, things like that. But it was the first time I did anything. It was the first time I heard of loving kindness practice. And so I was sitting there and I thought, what is that one? You know, like I want to learn that one. But I didn't have an opportunity to actually really practice it systematically until I went to Burma in 1985 when I did a, a three-month like immersion retreat in loving kindness practice with a Burmese monk, Sayadaw Upandita. And I had already been teaching for years and years. So I came back and I started teaching it right away because it was, it was so profound for me, even after so many years of, of mindfulness practice. Mm. And, uh, you know, it was very interesting teaching it because I ran into sort of feelings or, you know, people saying like, it's not a wisdom practice. You're not going to, dissolve boundaries between self and other, which, of course, that actually is not true. But it's just about feeling good, and feeling good is not the point. You have to be able to accept whatever you're feeling. And it was only later I realized they were saying, in effect, that's a girly practice. Mm. But I knew from my own experience that it's not sentimental. It's not trying to force anything. It's not hypocritical. It was really a revolution in how I was seeing myself and seeing others, you know, so... It's about attention, actually, in some ways, because we're paying attention differently. You know, instead of going with ourselves through the list of our faults again, we're wishing ourselves well. That's a shift for a lot of us. It's a little bit of a stretch. Or instead of looking right through that person serving us in the supermarket and objectifying them in some way or uh, not recognizing their humanity, in effect, we're looking at them and thinking, May you be happy. May you be peaceful. So we are shifting the way we pay attention, and it it has some very big consequences in life. And, I mean, the ancient message about loving-kindness practice is that it's supposed to be the antidote to fear, and that's just what I found it to be. Hmm. Instead of walking into a room with a primary motivation of fear, you know, I, I would walk into a room and just sense connection with beings there. And so I just kept teaching it, even though it wasn't it wasn't that popular in terms of certain kind of Buddhist hierarchy. But over time I began to see, and of course it took 10 years before I wrote Loving Kindness, which was my first book. Uh, but after that and just life, it, it was so gratifying to me to see um, you know, people in other traditions say, you know, Zen tradition, for example, say, you know, we have it all in like our chanting and our, our rituals, but we don't actually do the practice anymore. So I'm bringing back the practice. That was like, you know, an abbot somewhere. And, and I just began to see slowly that it wasn't so disdained, you know, and I thought, yes. And, and of course, then when the science and the research began, I was immensely happy. Yeah. 
That's interesting too. Yeah, that you bring up, of course, the the link between kind of the more feminine energy and bringing in these practices, yeah. which is very cool. One question that um, I know comes up for folks uh, who are just starting the loving kindness practice, particularly as you are raising that Buddhism is more way of life, and a lot of people view it less as a religion, or that's not the mm-hmm. part of it that they're attracted to. And so then sometimes I feel like the repetition of the phrases can feel like a prayer, mm-hmm. kind of like, um, you know, may you be happy, may you be well, almost as if you're trying to invoke that outcome, you know, through some supernatural mm-hmm. activity or something like that. So um, just curious your take on, on how that might feel. Well, people really define prayer in many different ways. Like you just had a certain definition of it. Sure, right. You know, and um, I'd say in the beginning of my teaching of loving kindness, metta, M-E-T-T-A is the Pali word for loving kindness. Um, Pali being the language of the original Buddhist text. So in the beginning of my teaching it, people would often say, you know, is this like prayer? But they were saying it with some suspicion. And and distress, you know, people, so many people had a really difficult experience as an organized religion or felt betrayed or that they had to capture the living meaning of a scripture or, or something themselves that, you know, that often when people would say, is this like prayer? It was like, tell me it's not. Or, mm-hmm. you know, um, I don't see it as petitionary prayer, you know, like. Because we start with the offering of loving kindness to ourselves, the original phrases are usually things like, may I be safe, may I be happy. And so people constantly ask me, well, who am I asking? Right. And it's like, we're not asking anybody anything. We're gift giving, we're offering, we're blessing. We're shifting what we're paying attention to and how we're paying attention. But more recently, interestingly enough, I heard that question, is this like prayer and and often there's like a little tone of hope in people's voice, you know, like, oh. tell me it's like prayer, you know, like, that's the practice I'm used to. That's the practice I feel confident about. I've seen tremendous changes from the way I pray, you know, uh, it opens me to allowing, you know, not everything being dependent on my strategizing, how it's going to work out. You know, I can let the forces of the universe work, whatever it is, and I... You know, and, and of course it's tempting or it would be easy to not listen deeply and just respond as though everyone was like back in the day when, you know, they, they felt hurt. Uh, but it's not mm. the case anymore. Some people are really obviously using their practice in a different way. Yeah, cool. And thinking about this kind of realm of love, which, I mean, there's so much to say about. Um, one of the things, I, the points I love that you've made is that, you know, we often feel like love is something we get from somebody else when in fact it's generated in us. Mm-hmm. Do you want to share anything kind of along those lines? Mm-hmm. Some of the um, ways I expressed that actually came from um, this movie that came out maybe like 12 years ago now called Dan in Real Life. And my goddaughter who at the time was like a little munchkin, she had a part in it. So I saw it many times. And uh, this character in the movie has a line which says, Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. Mm. Love is not a feeling, it's an ability. And I was so taken with that because it reminded me of the kinds of experiences I'd had doing intensive loving kindness practice where, I mean, of course, it is also a feeling and it's a feeling that we may long for quite deeply, but 
I realized that as long as I thought of love only as a feeling, first of all, it was a limitation. Like, what feeling? You know, and what about those moments when I see somebody more fully, but there's not sort of this emotional rush? What about those moments when I include somebody and realizing, oh, yeah, they want to be happy too? You know, we share that. There's so many times when what we feel as love is not a particular narrow emotional bandwidth. Plus, I realized that every time I thought of it as a feeling, for me, it became kind of like a commodity. And it was always in the hands of somebody else to give to me, in which case there'd be some love in my life or to take away from me, in which case I'd be bereft. I'd have nothing. And I used to get the image of like the UPS person standing at my doorstep holding a package of love and glancing down at the address and saying, no, I don't think so. And like walking away. <laughs> and then I would be like, please come back. I won't have any love if you go away. But when I realized it was an ability, then it's mine. It's within me. And other people certainly can inspire it or ignite it or threaten it. But ultimately, it's mine. And I was actually at a Mind and Life conference in 2016, right after the U.S. presidential election. Uh, so in San Diego. And I had written a book called Real Love, which was sort of based on that one line. And the message had come back from my editor, you didn't finish the book. And I, I wrote, I said, of course I finished the book. That's why I turned it in. <laughs> right. And she said, no, no, you just told a story. And you like drifted away somewhere. You have to finish the book. And I could not finish that book. Huh. I couldn't finish the book. And uh, I was at the Mind and Life conference when it struck me, oh, if love is an ability, maybe it's also a responsibility. And I finished the book in 15 minutes because I realized, well, if I want love to be present in a conversation, maybe I have to be the one bringing it in. If I want it considered as an element in uh, a dispute, maybe I have to be the one to bring it in. You're such a great storyteller. I think it's one of the fantastic things about your teaching. It makes it so accessible and really graspable. One kind of practical question that I've just always wondered is, you know, so many of, of the stories you tell in your teachings, I'm sure you've told hundreds or thousands of times, <laughs> but they always feel so fresh. So I'm wondering how you do that. They feel fresh to me. I feel bad for the people, you know, who heard me tell them <laughs> seven million times, but... Part of it is that all of my teachers, meditation teachers, have been Asian. And there's a style of teaching, at least in Asian monastic pedagogy, which is all about repetition. It's like you hear the same thing again and again and again and again. And I'm just kind of used to that. You know, it's like the rhythm of it's not embarrassing, you know. It's embarrassing for me in the West when I look out. and I Well, now I don't look out anywhere because I haven't taught in person in a long time. <laughs> but back in the day when I would yeah. look at the people in the room and I think, oh, God, they've been coming for 16 years. you know. Like, <laughs> or once somebody said to Joseph, hasn't anything happened to you since you left India? 
<laughs> and you think, oh, I need a new story. And every time I write a new book, I think uh, nothing's happened in, since the last book. You know, this is really bad. <laughs> but people tend to reassure me and say, no, I got something out of it, even though I'd heard it 70 million times. Yeah, that is what's amazing is even upon hearing it, if it's if it's many times, it feels fresh on the reception too. But I think that's so much in, in the delivery as well. So um, I've been thinking a lot about stories and narrative lately, both in the way that, you know, it's the way we take in information and in a sense our entire perception is a constructed story. And of course, a lot in meditation, we come up against the stories we tell ourselves a lot. And you've talked so brilliantly about that. So I'm thinking about that. And then also kind of the world that we're in now, this has just been kind of exploded into these completely competing narratives that are almost exclusionary about what's happening in the world and the way the world works. And so it's just, it's such a divided world now. I feel like um, there are just completely different narratives of reality. And I find that really quite troubling. Uh, so I don't know. I just thought I'd throw that out there and see if you have any thoughts about wrestling with the world of narrative and stories. Well, I think it's complicated, you know, because I don't believe that just because a view exists that it has validity, you know, even my own, that there are stories and narratives that reflect, um, say, the truth of interconnection, which is the truth of how things are, like it or not. And I remember years ago, one of my friends was an advisor on uh, the film Contagion, a technical advisor, because he was a physician. And so he brought me to the premiere in New York and, you know, so it's about like a worldwide pandemic. And basically someone in Hong Kong has a bad day and like a week later, half the earth is dead, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but modeled, you know, very carefully because they have these technical advisors. And and I realized it's the kind of, it was the kind of film going experience where like if you coughed, everyone in the theater near you was like, ah. But it told a story that was not improbable. You know, it certainly was not impossible. And it, based on the truth of interconnection, that that's how life is. And that's a very different narrative than, you know, excessive individualism and what happens over there is going to stay over there. And what I do doesn't matter. Rather than realizing it will ripple out. And something I've been saying for years is... You don't need a, a kind of spiritual understanding or belief to see that. Economics shows us this. Environmental consciousness certainly shows us this. And I used to say, even epidemiology shows us this because of having seen that movie. Uh -huh. And people used to say to me, why are you talking about epidemiology? You know, like, <laughs> or even what is epidemiology? Right. I bet you don't get those questions anymore. No, now I feel like I was prescient, you know, like I was talking about epidemiology. Um, you know, and, and it's troubling to face a narrative that denies the truth of interconnection. And yet, back to loving kindness, the kind of hatred we could have in our hearts for somebody with a different view is a different thing than realizing I really believe my vision is is not, it's not my personal agenda, you know. I believe this is reflective of the truth, and I am going to 
do everything I can to be empowered to express it, you know? And so that's different than kind of harboring this, this tremendous ill will against people who, and again, I, I know, and every time I say that, I don't believe all views are valid. I, I say, and I hope truthfully, I'm not always right either, you know? Uh, so I'm not saying other people's views are always invalid or, or anything like that, but um, I think that's also very important to, to bear in mind. I think um, along the lines of what you were just saying on interconnectedness, um, I'd be curious to pick your brain a little bit about the Buddhist view of self. So I think you, you mentioned even early on about uh, self and other and, and how that's a, such a central part of um, the Buddhist teachings. So also thinking about that a lot in uh, the midst of our current crises, pick whichever... <laughs> favorite one you want, but it uh, feels like so much of it has to do with the way we conceive of ourselves, um, you know, as separate, and therefore the way we conceive of others. So just curious, um, your thoughts about that Buddhist conception um, and its relevance today? Well, it too, you know, it's a little complicated to understand, because it's usually expressed as no self or right. something that sounds a little blank. What do you mean there's nothing, you know, in me? Like, I got up this morning. I made choices. I, You know, who was that? Um, so interconnectedness is actually one of the explanations that what we see, um, well, like if we went out and looked at a tree, there's a level of reality in which we just see a tree. It's like an entity there, singular. There's another level of reality, which we don't always get to, where... We just kind of sense the soil that is nourishing the tree and everything that affects the quality of the soil, which would also mean the quality of the rainfall and everything that affects the quality of the rainfall, which we now know is pretty extensive, and the sunlight and the moonlight and the quality of the air is a way of looking at the tree and seeing a network of relationship and influence and connection. That is also true. But one doesn't negate the other. It doesn't mean that you can't build a treehouse. You can't climb the tree. It is also this singular entity. But we only see it as the singular entity. And we're problem solving. We're kind of stuck. Because maybe the problem isn't something affecting the soil. Or a relationship uh, that goes back away. You know, like who planted it and where. Or, or something like that. And now it's fascinating. Um what do they call it? The wood wide web, you know, like seeing how trees influence one another and they almost speak to one another and they nurture one another. And, you know, if one tree's not doing well, these older trees like shoot food over, you know, like things like that. So we don't want to use one aspect of the truth to annihilate the other, but it's a much more valid uh, and realistic world when we can take in the, the nature of relationship, which we don't often look at.
You mentioned, um, and you, you've talked about in a lot of different forms, your early childhood and it was very difficult and traumatic. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it sounds like that's part of what drew you to these practices. Um, so I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a little bit about how this path kind of gave you a lens on the suffering that you might have been experiencing and and has hopefully led to some healing or just your perspective mm -hmm. on working with trauma on the contemplative path? Well, I think it was, you know, of course, because things had been so disruptive and chaotic in my childhood that I listened in that Asian philosophy course in a whole other way. Even aside from hearing about the methods of meditation, the first thing I heard that was important was from within the context of the Buddhist teaching that life has suffering in it. And, you know, I'd grown up, you know, like my parents divorced when I was four. My mother died when I was nine. And mm. um, by the time I went to college at the age of 16, I lived in five different family configurations. And each of those changes that happened because somebody died or something horrible had happened. And so, you know, I never felt like anybody else. I never felt like I belonged. I didn't think my family, obviously my family didn't look like anyone else's. And what I heard in that, in that class was the Buddha says, life has suffering in it, which translated in my head to, it's not just you. You're not weird. Uh, you're not like outside. This is the nature of life. And it's not that we all suffer in the same degree because we don't. But that vulnerability, the kind of the fragility of life, the insecurity of life, we share that. And it felt really, for me, the first time in my life I felt included. And that was just in the problem. Uh, but that was huge. That was very important. And I've seen, of course, years later, you know, that no one's childhood was really necessarily all that good, however it looked on the surface, and that a lot is hidden. And... Um, we tend to have a lot to work through, each of us. And I was 18 when I started practice. I'd never been to therapy. I'd never used other modalities. Um, so I did it all in, in a different order, you know, than people might. But I, I kept coming back, and I keep coming back to things learned in the course of practice that are really important. You know, like even the question of balance you know, the um, idea, say, if you're meditating and something painful is coming up, uh, not to throw yourself into the pain and kind of get overwhelmed by it, but to develop a different relationship to it. So you may not be adding so much unkindness towards yourself, you know, blaming yourself. I shouldn't be feeling this or isolation. I'm the only one who ever feels this or a sense of permanence like What's this going to feel like in a year and a half when it's still here? Whatever. And so that those are skills, you know, of learning to let go of all of those add-ons. And then realizing deeply everything is changing. Nothing is permanent. And I didn't have to be so afraid of... I'm somewhat famous, um, you know, speaking of like the first group of people I was meditating with in my first retreat with us and going, I'm somewhat famous for having marched up to him at one point and looking him in the eye and saying, I never used to be an angry person before I started meditating, uh -huh. thereby laying blame exactly where I felt it belonged, which was clearly on him. <laughs> right. You know, it was no doubt all his fault. And he just laughed. And 
And of course, I'd been hugely angry, but I hadn't seen it before because I'd never just done the introspection. And and I did not like what I was uncovering, you know? And so that was a whole part of the training. And then balance um, in the sense of many teachers would say through the years, you know, something painful is happening, imagery, emotion, you know, even physically. Don't just be with it and be with it and be with it and be with it relentlessly. You need a break. Be with it. Move your attention to something that's easier to be with. And there's a whole list of things, you know, listening to sound or something like that. And then maybe you go back to it and then you leave it again. And as, as one teacher, uh, this Burmese monk, Sider Pandita, said, it's not wrong to just like be with it and be with it and be with it, but you likely get exhausted. So why not build in balance all along the way? And I'll tell you of all the meditation instructions I give, that's one of the least popular. To move away and back? Yeah. Huh. People say, you think I'm a coward or you think I don't have it to really do the real thing, you know? Huh. Which is just to confront the pain. But that, if you know anything about trauma therapy, it's right out of there as well, you know? And so it's still like the meditation practice is still a kind of, uh, for me, you know, a uh, a profoundly appropriate skill to be applying in a lot of situations. And how about um, for you and your practice and your training, the role of the body mm-hmm. as a key to, or its relationship to the mind, I guess? Well, my first teacher, you know, his main method was the body scan. So that was how I started. And that 10-day retreat, you spent three days being aware of the breath at the nostrils, only at the nostrils, that's his style. And then you did a body scan for seven days. And you did a teensy little bit of loving kindness at the end. And that was the practice in which you became so angry? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. You know, and so, I mean, I didn't know anything. I didn't know anything about, uh, you know, the body keeps the score or anything about trauma or anything. And uh, But it was so much his style. And it's what I really practiced for years. And so I didn't, I never thought of meditation as like cognitive, you know, reappraisal or anything like that. I thought it was just this very embodied thing. And then even later with other teachers where uh, then there was walking meditation or then there was with the school of practice um, that Saira Upandita, my Burmese monastic teacher, was a part of their very, very into continuity of awareness. So it's like, uh, feel the warmth of the teacup, feel the weight of it, smell the tea, taste the tea, uh, feel everything happening in your body as you get up from the sitting. That's as important as anything that happened in the sitting. You know, so there are elements of that as well. I would say uh, not always and, and not always emphasized, you know, in, in those ways, so for sure. And I think there's a strong Western proclivity to think if I can only understand this, then I'll be free. And sometimes we do understand it intellectually, and that's not nothing, that's a big thing, but it's also probably not everything. Yeah, I wonder what your perspective is, you know, having trained so much in Asia and then obviously teaching so much in the West and the U.S. context, there is such a different mindset, it feels like, in so many of these ways. Like, you just brought up how people tend to not really like the idea of, giving yourself a break and moving away from difficulty rather just like power through it. And that feels like a very uh, American (laughs) Western mindset. So 
What's been your experience of coming up against that mindset? Like, what are some of the salient parts of that that you've found? Yeah, well, I think, you know, we, we do tend to be a little bit overheroic. And, and we have this model maybe of breaking through rather than integrating, you know, and being able to hold, say, a difficult memory or mindset, you know. And really, the practice is about kind of the holding environment, not about battling with, the, you know, the thing itself that's uncomfortable. Uh, and that's very difficult. Like when I said that it was not a popular meditation instruction, I meant it. The only meditation instruction as unpopular is very similar, which is um, in the practice of loving kindness, the underlying principle is to do it in the easiest way possible. It's not meant to be a struggle. It's creative. It can be fun. And that underlying principle is confounding for a lot of people because traditionally you start with the offering of loving kindness to yourself because you are supposed to be easiest. And clearly that is not the case, you know, for many, many people. And I always go back to the underlying principle. I say, stick yourself in later. You know, start with a benefactor. Um, I actually once had a public dialogue with Barbara Fredrickson about this because uh, one of her books had just come out. We were somewhere in New York doing this talk together. And she said, in teaching loving kindness as she does, or having loving kindness taught so much as she does for, for research, she felt like someone had to have at least some positive experience of it within the first few weeks or they wouldn't continue. And that was especially hard because you start with yourself and that can be so difficult. And I said, well, change the order. And she said, she since changed her mind, but at the time, she said, well, I can't change the order because it's for research. So oh. everything needs to be replicated <laughs> right. exactly. Of course. You know, and I said, God, uh, you know, as a human being who's a teacher, if I had somebody in front of me who was struggling, I'd change the order in 10 seconds, you know? Right, right. So anyway, that's an aside, Yeah, but, that's an interesting challenge, right, for research. But she has changed her mind since then. But I know that it's going to be a struggle for a lot of people, and and we need to understand that and just shift the order. So the other part of it comes in as you, you offer loving kindness to this variety of beings, those you feel close to and those you don't feel so close to. You come to someone you find difficult, which in, the, um, in Asia is usually translated as an enemy. So you come to the offering of loving kindness to an enemy. And here too, they say, maybe don't start with the most unthinkable person in your life who has hurt you so badly or who in your eyes has behaved so terribly on the world stage. Like start with somebody with a little bit of annoyance and kind of slowly make your way over. And again, it's not wrong and you're not bad for, you know, jumping in off the deep end, but it's going to be harder. Why do it in the hardest way possible? You know, if you put the building blocks in place slowly then when you offer loving kindness to an extremely difficult person, and it's back to like an embodied understanding, you may not even have the words for, of, oh, this is what it feels like to have compassion for someone else and for myself. Or this is what it feels like to have loving kindness for someone and realize I can't fix this. Or to have loving kindness for someone 
and realize I so disagree with how they behave or what they stand for that I'm going to fight against it with everything I've got, but not from the same place of so much hatred and alienation. And so if you make your way there slowly, it'll be more genuine. I know you've been thinking a lot recently. Um, your latest book is called Real Change. And so I know you've been thinking about kind of activism and change in society. Mm-hmm. So I'm just wondering if you want to share some thoughts there about the relevance of the Buddhist path or these ideas to creating change. Yeah. A lot of my teaching for a while, uh, most of my teaching is just public, like whoever shows up on Zoom or, you know, back in the day in the room. Uh, some of it is more targeted toward particular populations. And so for many years, a good amount of my teaching was for people we call caregivers. Um, I always think there needs to be a better word, but you know, people who either in their personal life, taking care of a family member, or in their professional life, they're working often on the front lines of suffering, um, dealing with some intractable system. And part of my effort, you know, is gratitude, because I really believe these are the people who are holding up the world, you know, for the rest of us, um, often unheralded and uncelebrated. And part of it is, as you know, uh, far better than I, you know, the kind of distinction that's made these days between empathy and compassion. Mm-hmm. And I've seen, you know, we, we have all seen, I think, a world without a lot of empathy, which is really cruel and very cold. And so I've really celebrated the efforts people have made to do empathy training and things like that. But then I think of, like, my people, and, like, they've got plenty of empathy. You know, they resonate with other people's situation. That's often why they're doing what they're doing, but they're burning out for some other reason. And so sometimes it seems that that's a certain lack of balance. It's like compassion for others but not for themselves so much. Sometimes it seems like a lack of balance and that there's maybe tremendous caring, but not a lot of wisdom in the sense of better boundaries or a sense of limits, like wisdom. Like, yeah, I'm not in control of the universe. I can't fix it, you know, according to my timetable and so on. So I'm really interested in that, you know, and helping foster some of that kind of balance for these tremendous people. And One day I sort of woke up and I thought, who reminds me of those caregivers? And I thought, oh, activists. It's the same kind of dynamic. And so, you know, I I did a bunch of exploration and did a bunch of interviews and stuff for that book, For Real Change. And it was very gratifying for me. It came out right in the pandemic. It was supposed to come out, I think, June of 2020. It came out in September instead. And in that period, I uh, showed it to a friend who was excerpting it for something, and he said, you know, I really liked the book, but I kept reading those examples you used and thinking, that's what made you anxious? Well, you see what's coming. <laughs> right. 
So I went back to the publisher and I said, would it be okay if I wrote a new preface to sort of try to contextualize the book? And they said, sure. And my overarching question for myself in writing that preface was what's still true? Like there's been so much disruption and upheaval and change and not knowing, like what's still true? And in effect, like what am I counting on? What am I leaning on? And and I really, I really look, you know, and, and it came back to those same elements of the practice that I've been, meditation practice that I've been utilizing and the same kind of wisdom that needs to be balanced. Um, I was so grateful that the topics in the book, you know, I would wake up in the morning thinking, did I write a completely irrelevant book? <laughs> you know, but it has chapters like... Um, moving from anger to courage or, or moving from grief to resilience. And I thought, well, thank goodness, you know, there are perennial truths. Mm. Just in closing, I want to come back to some of what you were talking about, about interconnectedness and that being the real state of affairs. And I've heard you say one of the most powerful and common outcomes of practice is that you end up feeling more connected, which can seem a little bit um, counterintuitive. Often we're doing this individual practice kind of by ourselves. So just wondering if you want to share thoughts on, on that trajectory, how that ends up making us realize interconnectedness. Yeah, I mean, I think it's the nature of wisdom, you know, because I think sometimes people feel I'm going to end up really kind of like um, sanctimonious and I'm always going to give myself a lecture and I'm, I'm going to see this stuff come up in my mind and I'm going to slam it down, you know, and I'm going to make myself, you know, be kind of a hypocrite, like, I'm not going to like this person, but I'm going to pretend to be interested in what they're saying or whatever. But I haven't found the experience to be anything like that. It's like things shift inside of us because we're seeing things differently. And um, it's very genuine. And some of it has to do with remembering to pause. Like if you're about to react to what somebody's saying, maybe you want to pause and like listen a little bit more, you know, or... Uh, something I started doing during kind of isolation in the pandemic, uh, which I had learned from other people. They said they, they got in the habit of not pressing send on the email right away, but like reading it again and then thinking, what would it be like to get this as a recipient? And then maybe rewrite it. And I, I thought that's a really good habit. So I, I took it up, which was great. You know, so we might have to make a little adjustments to give wisdom the chance to arise, (laughs) but it's the wisdom. It's just like we see things differently. You see somebody struggling and and you think, well, maybe they're giving a bad time to everyone they supervise at work because they are having a hard time themselves. And you can kind of see it on their face if you stop. Or a real belief that everybody wants to be happy and we are taught so many things that are just wrong about where happiness is to be found. Understanding that somebody, my favorite question in going into an organization or a company to teach is who else needs to be doing their job well for you to do your job well? And I was talking to a a physician who's the head of a large medical practice in, in a hospital, also like in the height of the pandemic. And he said, you know who I have an increased appreciation for? It's the cleaning staff. Mm. I thought, well, yeah, you know. But, you know, I tried that question not too long ago on Zoom with, with this company. And 
Nobody was very excited by it. So then I said, well, how many of you work outside of the home? And, you know, what are you relying on for transportation? There's like a train driver, you know, where there's a, there's a car mechanic where there's somebody maintaining the roads. And, and that wasn't really doing it either. So I said, how many of you eat where you don't grow your own food? And you just see we are embedded in these chains of connection. That's just how things are. And maybe we stop for a few moments and thank somebody who we normally take for granted. Or we realize, oh, someone's counting on me. You know, like, I, I need to perform to whatever degree of excellence I can. Um, there's so many ways in which we can see it because it's just the way it is. And we don't need to romanticize it or think it's anything special but it's also not um it's a shift that happens and so you're about to ridicule somebody and you stop for a moment and you think they don't look that happy maybe i'll just be a little kinder or say what i have to say in a nicer way mm. something like that and, and it's just it's so genuine and it's so kind of flowing that that big fear you know i'm going to be like this awful, stern, like, you know, made-up person. You know, it's not like that. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending the time to chat with us today. This has been so nourishing and wonderful, and I really appreciate everything you're doing in the world, and you've been a great teacher to me, so personal thanks as well. Well, thank you. It is just lovely to be with you. This episode was edited and produced by me and Phil Walker. And music on the show is from Blue Dot Sessions and Universal. Show notes and resources for this and other episodes can be found at podcast.mindandlife.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. And if something in this conversation sparked insight for you, let us know. You can send an email or voice memo to podcast at mindandlife.org. Mind and Life is a production of the Mind and Life Institute. Visit us at mindandlife.org, where you can learn more about how we bridge science and contemplative wisdom to foster insight and inspire action towards flourishing. If you value these conversations, please consider supporting the show. You can make a donation at mindandlife.org under support. Any amount is so appreciated, and it really helps us create this show. Thank you for listening. <laughs>